Uh, we were looking through Genesis uh, before Easter, and we took a couple of weeks off for Easter. Now we're going to jump back in, give you a kind of a overview of the Bible. Genesis 1 through, you can kind of think of the Bible as an hourglass. Genesis 1 through 11, it's this kind of universal, cosmic story. It deals with the beginning, how everything started, how sin entered the world. As you read through 1 through 11, you'll notice God is dealing with all of creation, all of humanity. Then in chapter 12, which is where we're going to look today, everything kind of focuses in on one man, Abraham, and on his family. His family is becomes the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. That's the same, the same group. And everything from uh, Genesis 12 through Acts 9 really centers in on that one man, Abraham, and on his family, the Jewish people. And the other nations that are mentioned are only mentioned in relationship to, to, to Israel. So everything really hones in on them. And then in Acts chapter 10, that you see the bottom part of the hourglass, everything expands again to include Jews and Gentiles, which is... Uh, most of us, everyone is either a Jew or a Gentile, so you have this universal picture from Acts 10 going on. So you've got this hourglass, first 11 chapters of the Bible deal with everybody, everything hones in in Genesis 12, dealing with Abraham and the Jewish people. Then in Acts chapter 10, when Peter uh, goes to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, everything opens up again. So what we're going to look at today is kind of the narrowing of God's scope. So we'll begin with Abraham's family tree. I'm going to say Abraham. Abram and Abraham are the same guy. God renames Abram Abraham a little bit longer, but I'm a little bit down the road, but I'm going to confuse those two. And Sarai and Sarah are the same person too. So I'm going to interchange all of those names just because I will. So you can just keep that in mind. It, they're the same people. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur, in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Here's a picture of the family tree, just so you can kind of see where everybody is. So we've got Terah. He has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, he also has Sarai that by a different mom, or by a different wife. So Abram marries his half-sister. That becomes important in a little bit. Kind of gross, but it does become important in a little bit. Haran dies, and then his son Lot is not formally adopted, but basically gets pulled into Abram and Sarah's family. They basically kind of take him in, and when granddad, son, wife, and then grandson Lot, they all move to this place called um, Haran. So that's a little bit of Abraham's family tree. Now starting in verse 12, this is the narrowing of the scope. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife Sarah, she's 65 at this time, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired inherited, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. 
Abram traveled through, through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. So, we have God calling Abraham. It's a huge deal in all of, really all of world history. It's God going from this cosmic, I'm dealing with everybody, to I'm dealing with this one man. And everything that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament really centers in on these couple of verses and what God says he's going to do both to or for Abraham and also what he's going to do through Abraham. So the first thing he says is you've got to leave where you are. I think we have a picture. I, I have no idea why they took that route. It's obviously not very direct, but it's about, that's about 950 miles of journeying. The green, that's where Terah, Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, they all go to Haran. And then once they're in Haran, I don't know how long they're there. The Bible doesn't say Abraham, Sarah, and Lot are called by God to leave that place and to go to Canaan, which becomes the promised land. So as you read through the Bible in the Old Testament, particularly beginning in Joshua, everything centers around what's called the land of Canaan. Down there you see Shechem and Hebron and all of those things. That's the land of Canaan. So, big deal. So what God says to Abraham is, I want you to leave your land, I want you to leave your people, your ethnic group, and I want you to leave your father's household. Now for someone living in that time, in that culture, that pretty much is everything. Your identity is defined by your land and your ethnic group. Leave those. Your economic security is your being a part of your father's household. Abraham obviously wasn't destitute. When he left, he took stuff with him. But the safety net for him was being a part of his father's household because that ultimately where was where all of his wealth was. And he wouldn't get his share until his father died. He left his father before his father died. So that means he doesn't get any of it. So he's leaving behind, maybe for us it's like your nest egg, your inheritance. That's what he's leaving behind. He does have some stuff that is, that is uh, his, but he's leaving behind his economic security blanket as well as his source of identity. And he's going to a foreign land where he's got no people, where uh, he has no claim on the land. He really doesn't even know what he's supposed to do. It's a, it's a massive command slash request, however you want to see that. From God, Abraham could have said no, but he didn't. It's this, this word to him, leave. It's, it, think in your own mind. If God, however he speaks to you, shows up in your room tonight and says, listen, I need you to quit your job, and I need you to move from here to whatever for you is the, far, the other end of the earth. I need you to move there. And I want you to leave behind everything that defines who you are. You're going to leave your career behind, not just your job, but your career. You can take your immediate family, but everybody else stays. All your extended family, you're going to leave them behind. In, in Abraham's mind, he's never going to see any of these people again. He's cutting ties and he's starting literally from scratch. I want you to think about that invitation from God for you and how you would respond. Abraham goes, here's what God says to him. He gives him three things that he's going to do for him and then several things that he's going to do through him. He says he's going to give him land. You see this particularly in verse 7 when he gets to Canaan. He says, I'm going to give you this land. Uh, he says he's going to give him, make him to a great nation. That really has to do with the number of descendants that he's going to have. At this point, Abraham 75, Sarah 65. They haven't had a kid yet. Probably no indication that they're going to have a kid 
apart from God's intervention, but that's the first part of this promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have numerous descendants. We see that promise fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. I will bless you. That word uh, in this context, really speaking about material blessings, often in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible, when you see that word let, uh, bless, it either means kids or stuff. And God's already said, I'm going to give you descendants. And now he says, I'm going to give you material wealth as well. In this time, wealth is measured in terms of the number of livestock, the amount of gold, precious metals that you have, gold and silver, and the amount of servants that are in your household. That's how wealth is measured. So the more people you have, the more gold you have, and the more livestock you have, that is how wealthy you are. And so, and we'll see as we read through that God does give Abraham all of those things. And he also says, I will make your name great. I'm going to increase your influence. And so that's what God says he's going to do for or to Abraham. You're going to have land. You're going to have descendants. You're going to have wealth. And you're going to have influence. All of that sounds wonderful. That may make you be willing to leave everything that you have right now and start from scratch. If God were to say, here's the four things I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you a place. And I'm going to give you a people. And I'm going to give you um, financial blessings, and I'm going to increase your influence. Then things turn here, and you will be a blessing. That's the shift. So it's from everything God's going to do to or for Abraham to what he wants to do through Abraham. You're going to be a blessing. What exactly does that look like? I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. So God is the source of blessing and cursing, but Abraham really becomes kind of the touchstone for that. So what God is saying is that I'm going to treat people based on how they treat you and how they treat your family. Think, it, it is true for individuals. We'll see that in a little bit. It's primarily true of nations. The way other nations deal with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament determines how God will deal with them. If they're friends of Israel in the Old Testament, then we see God blesses them. If they are a hindrance to what God's trying to do with Israel, then they get cursed. They get wiped out in some cases. For us, that might not seem fair. Why did God pick him? How come just this one nation? I thought God loved everybody. This just seems very exclusive. I don't like it. The next passage hopefully helps you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's a change in the syntax there um, with that last phrase that indicates this is the purpose of all of it. So everything that God's doing for Abraham leads to that last statement. And all nations will be blessed through you. That's the point of all of it. Leave everything you know. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a, a people and a land and money because if you're going to be a nation, you've got to have the financial uh, stability to do that. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to increase your influence and I'm going to do all of that so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So yes, it's exclusive. Yes, you see God selecting one person out of everyone on the face of the earth and saying, I'm going to work through him. But the purposes of working through him is so ultimately he can work through everybody. Remember, the hourglass does narrow, but then it expands again in Acts 10. And that blessing, the fulfillment of that last statement, all nations on earth will be blessed through you, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is a Jew. He was a descendant of Abraham. Here's a couple of verses this is Acts 3. This is Peter speaking to fellow Jews. Your heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. That's what we just read. 
When God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, he sent him first to you. Remember, if you remember in Jesus' ministry, he said, we're going to go first to the house of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, and then we'll go outside of them. He sent him first to you, Jews, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So there we have God using Jesus as a blessing to the Jews. And then in Galatians 3, Paul's talking to Gentiles, which is everybody else. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. There's that same statement again. Skipping down to verse 14. God redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So you see in the New Testament the fulfillment of this. This verse is fulfilled. All nations are going to be blessed through you. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He was a child, a descendant of Abraham. He was a Jew, and through him, all of us can be reconciled to God. So you can go back and look at that if you want. I did a few um, just quick searches, and a lot of this promise is actually still being fulfilled literally with the nation of Israel, but we also see how it's being fulfilled with um, Abraham's spiritual children. That's us as well. So Abraham obeys. He hears this call. And he says, yes, he gets up and he goes. He takes his family and what he's got with him, and they head to Canaan. One thing I want to point out, Abraham builds two altars. The Lord appears to Abraham, or Abram, he says, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then later on in Bethel, there Abraham built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. For us, see there the importance of, of altars. When you hear altar in, the, in this context, don't think maybe what you've seen in a church, a wooden thing where everybody kneels. It's a pile of rocks or a pile of dirt. It's just, it's some elevated space to say, hey, this is important. And when you read through the Old Testament, oftentimes when God does something significant, the people, they, they make an altar. And again, usually it's a pile of rocks. But the idea being that over time, the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandkids and the great-great-grandkids would say, hey, why is there a pile of rocks here? And the wise older leaders would say, oh, let me tell you this story about how God did this or when God spoke this. It was a way of reminding people of what God had done. So altars are important as memorials for us. They serve as reminders of what God has said to us or what God has done in our lives. And it's very important for us to have those as well. You can do piles of rocks if you want. Um, If that helps you, I journal a little easier to carry around than a pile of rocks, but you need to find something for you that works. Some way, some mechanism where you can uh, capture, record, so you can remember what God has said to you and what God has done in your life. I'm thinking of, there's no details here. We don't know what it looked like for God to speak to Abraham. If he heard a voice through his ears audibly, we don't know if God spoke to him in a dream, if an angel showed up in his tent. We don't know what happened. We just know that God spoke clearly enough to Abraham that he was willing to leave everything that he knew and travel to Canaan and remain faithful for 25 years. That's how long it took for him and Sarah to have Isaac, their their only son, together. It took a long time, and he remained faithful more or less for all of those 25 years. A few blips, but in general, his, his track record is very good. So God spoke... Whatever that looks like, clearly enough, strongly enough to Abraham that he was willing to wrap his life around that revelation. 
It's interesting to me that knowing the revelation was that strong, he still built an altar to remind him. It's just human nature. We forget. We live now. It's very easy for us to lose sight of the things that God has put in our hearts uh, in the past. And that may have happened to you. You may have been in a, gone on a retreat, been in a small group, been in a service, and you felt pretty strongly that God was putting something in your heart. And if you don't kind of grab onto that immediately, it's amazing how just within a handful of weeks it's faded into the background because you get lost in the weeds of what you're doing right now in your life. If you think about your relationship with God, His primary concern is this relationship with you. He wants to conform you into the image of His Son. And what His the way He does that is relationally with us. He's maintaining connection. Now, if you have an enemy, He can't stop God from speaking to you. That's beyond His ability to do that. He can't stop you for, from asking God to speak to you. That's beyond His capacity to do. One of the things I think one of his primary tactics to keep us from living in ongoing obedience to the Lord is we just forget. He knows us, and he knows, hey, if just give it time, and it's going to play out. They're going to, they're going to find some sh- new shiny thing, and they're going to grab onto that, and they're going to lose the revelation that God has given to them. It's just a subtle tactic of his. Again, he can't keep God from speaking to us. Side note, when I'm saying speak, I'm not talking about through your ears. You know that. I'm talking about how God speaks to our hearts. He speaks to us in multiple ways, primarily through the Bible, through His Spirit, kind of speaking directly to our heart, and through other people who love us and love Him. Those are the three primary ways that God speaks to us. And as a Christian, that's available. The assumption for you is that God is always desiring to speak to you about some area of your life. He hasn't kind of thrown us out there to say, figure it out. Paul says we want to keep in step with the Spirit, and that's 100% available for all of us. So... Again, the enemy, he can't do anything about that. There's no way he can't get in uh, to that relationship and kind of uh, mess things up. And so I think one of his tactics is just, it's just delay. It's delayed obedience on our part. It's just, here, just give it time, and whatever I've spoken to them will fade. And many of you, again, probably have experience with that. So my encouragement, find a way of setting up an altar when God speaks to you. When you feel like God's put something in your life, Grab it somehow. My, for me, it's journaling. The thing for me is to actually remember what I put in a journal. That's a, another issue. But there's got to be some way for you of grabbing onto that. Second reason altars are important. So God, Abraham built one when God spoke to him, and he also built one when he needed to meet with God. That's that second one. He called on the name of the Lord. That's word called on has to do with prayer and with worship. And so for you, Are there places where you meet with him? There's got to be some mechanism for you. It doesn't have to be a a literal space. There's got to be this mechanism for you where when you need to meet with God, you've got a way of doing that. Um, If if your entire communion with God is spontaneous and on the fly, then most likely it's also shallow. If if you don't have a, a mechanism, I don't know another word, a process where you know you can connect with him, then most likely your connection is sporadic at best. There's got to be this, this thing that you have. For some, like for some people, it's worship. It doesn't matter where. That's, that's their process. That's a mechanism for them to personally worship God, sing, usually it's connected to music. That's how that, they're going to meet him. When they need to meet God, it's worship. 
Some people have a literal space. It's this chair, it's this room. Some people, it's a particular passage in the Bible. They can go to Psalms. I don't know what it is for you, but there needs to be that mechanism that's in place for you where when you need to call on the name of the Lord, you know, hey, this is my, this is my go-to. It's how I meet with Him. So altars are important for when God speaks to us, and altars are also important for when we need to meet with Him. So my encouragement to you is, just, is to think through your life and what does it look like practically to, to begin to build those things in. It will deepen your relationship with the Lord. Verse 10. Interesting story. There was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know you're a beautiful woman. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. So that's, just to be clear, he's pulling her in as his wife, making her part of his harem. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. That's that whole idea of wealth added to Abraham. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh, and his household because of Abram's wife Sarah. There's that idea. They didn't treat Abraham and Sarah well, so God cursed them. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. They sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So remember, Abram and Sarah are half brother and sister. Same dad, different mom. We're going to take a poll. Who says Abraham lied? So the rest of you say he told the truth. Who says he told the truth? You've got to own it. Put your hand in there. The rest of you have no opinion on the matter? <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. Come on. Huh? he's a liar come on if you said he told the truth you can't do my taxes I'm joking but not really so lying or telling the truth it's difficult Abraham read Hebrews 11 half of the chapter is about him hero of the faith and then we see him in this situation he tells, it's partly true, but his, his motivation is to deceive. We'll get into that in a little bit, how much of our actions are, how to judge our actions based on our motivation, not based on, on actually what we're doing. And what's awesome is he does this again in chapter 20. Same thing, different guy, he lies again. And he says to him, but it's not, she is my half-sister, so it's kind of true. But God doesn't necessarily condemn him. There's nothing in there that says God condemns Abraham. So if you want to say, hey, he told the truth, you can say, well, God didn't say anything about it, so why should we? Here's my take on it. Abraham's afraid. It says, I'm afraid. And that's his motivation. He's afraid of what's going to happen. So custom. If he says, Sarah, you're my sister, I'm your brother, if anybody wants to, 
if anyone takes an interest in you and they want to marry you, they're going to have to negotiate through me as your male relative. So what some people would say, and it makes sense, is what Abraham's doing is he's assuming anyone who wants Sarah will have to go through him and he can slow play the negotiations. He can set the price for her so high, the dowry for her so high, he can be busy, he can let it go to voicemail, whatever. He can slow play it until it rains. He's just waiting for it to rain in Canaan. Egypt is more stable, they've got the Nile River, so... um, Less rain in Canaan, or no rain in Canaan would not affect Egypt the same way. It had a more stable agricultural base because of the Nile River. So all he's waiting for is for it to rain so he can go back home. And again, the idea is, well, they're going to have to come through me culturally to get to her. And so I'll be in control and I can kind of, I can work it at that point so that she she stays single, basically. What he didn't count on was the person who would take an interest in her, doesn't have to go through anyone. It's Pharaoh, and he can do whatever he wants. But you see, he gives Abraham all of this stuff, all the things that we said signify wealth in this culture. So there's this, it looks like he is at least acknowledging, hey, I'm bringing her into my harem, and so I'm going to pay you for her. I know that's offensive, but that's kind of a cultural custom there. And so Abraham does get rich off of that. So his fears are 100% justified. The thing that he was scared would happen did happen. It just didn't play out the way he wanted. He just didn't, he didn't conceive that the one who would want her is one who would not have to go through him to get to her. And so God intervenes in order to protect this promise that he made to Abraham. Obviously, if, if, if they're no longer married, or if, if she is in Pharaoh's house, then all of the promises that God made to Abraham, particularly, you're going to be a great nation, it's going to be difficult to fulfill when she's no longer his wife. And so you've got an issue there. And so God intervenes. We don't know how Pharaoh puts the, connects the dots to say, well, what's happening in my house? All of these plagues on my house are connected to Sarah. But somehow he does. And so he gives, he goes to Abraham and says, you didn't, why'd you do this? Take her back and get out of here. And they do. So Abraham leaves richer than when he went. For us, the thing for me, this idea of ongoing faith, or faith is ongoing, I think you see it here. We just talked about this radical yes that Abraham made initially. He left everything to go hundreds of miles away and to start from scratch. And when he gets there, two primary obstacles to the fulfillment of this call on his life are still in place. He and Sarah still don't have a kid, and they're Canaanites in the land. We, we kind of glossed over that. It says when he gets to the land of Canaanites, the Canaanites still live there. Most likely when he goes to them and says, hey, God told me I'm going to get all of this land, they're probably not going to say okay and pick up and move. There's an issue there for him on two significant fronts. He doesn't have a kid, and he doesn't have any land, and both of those things are primary ways Those are primary expressions of the fulfillment of this promise. He's a man of faith. It's a huge yes for him. And then immediately, we don't know what the time frame is, but the very next scene that we see is he gives in to fear. Faith is ongoing. We sang that song, The Great I Am. God is the God of the present, not of the past. And so even though Abraham exercised great faith in going to Canaan initially, that doesn't mean that he's going to continue to do so. Every, there's, there's this constant re-upping with God. 
which for us sometimes seems not fair, but again, he's trying to form us into the image of his son. Hebrews says without faith or trust, it's impossible to please him. So he's constantly putting in front of us opportunities to either trust him or to not trust him. And we can't rely on what we did yesterday. It doesn't matter. What he's saying is, are you going to trust me today? Jesus walked 3,100 miles in three years. Think literally with me. That he said to the disciples, follow me. Now, if he's walking 3,100 miles and he says, follow me, if every day they're not literally taking steps behind him, then they get left behind, don't they? If even for every mile he walks, if they, just, if, if they, if they lag a foot, a mile's 5,280 feet. So for every 5,280 feet Jesus walks, they walk 5,279. That seems pretty good, doesn't it? Over the course of 3,100 miles, you know what that translates to? A thousand yards. You can't see him at that point. You need a scope, binoculars. He's too far out in front. Just that little bit of lag over time creates this massive gap between where Jesus is and where the twelve are. And the same thing is true for us. If we're not constantly saying yes to him, if we're not constantly saying I'm trusting you with this and that and all of these things, then it creates this gap between where he is and where we are. And over the course of time, we get to the point where we can't see him anymore without binoculars. It creates this distance for us. And maybe some of you have experienced that. You kind of wake up one day and go, what happened? Everything was going great. And now all of a sudden I feel disconnected and distant and unsure about where, how I'm supposed to be following the Lord. That doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time, and we notice it overnight. Again, it's this subtle work of the enemy to get us separated from God, and part of it's just our own nature. We just get tired, and we think one foot out of 5,280 is not a big deal, and it's not a big deal. But one foot over every mile for 3,000 miles winds up being a huge deal. And that's what we see here with Abraham. I think he lied. And I think he lied, the reason I think he lied is because it was fear. He wasn't acting out of faith. He was acting out of fear. And so he was trying to control the situation. So for us, when anxiety, if you like that word better than fear, they're cousins. Um, if you like that word better than fear, when that creeps into our heart, two ditches we tend to fall into. One is like Abraham. For some of us, we grab hold of the situation. I'm going to fix this. So here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Just in case this happens, and he was right, what he thought would happen did happen. Just in case, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to manage this situation. Here's how we're going to get through this in a way to preserve what God has promised to us. It's basically plan B for when God doesn't come through. That's all it is. That's, again, to me why I think it was deceitful. It wasn't coming from a place of faith. It was coming from a place of fear and anxiety. And that's how some of you are wired. When, when uh, fear or anxiety creeps in, you just hit the gas. That's when you run harder. That's when you plan more. That's when you hold things tighter. You're going to figure it out. You're going you're gonna to strategize your way or resource your way or network your way or talk your way through whatever the difficulty is. The other ditch is denial. It's putting your head in the sand. It's saying, hey... Everything's going to be okay. Everything's fine. That could look like faith, but if it's rooted in fear and unwillingness to face reality, 
then it's, it, it's no good. Again, it's, it's denying what's actually happening. The thing for us on the outside is the results of either of those things can look like faith. It could, we don't know. It, it, Abraham moving to Egypt could very well be faith. What he could be saying is, you know what? God has promised Sarah that me and you, we're going to have a son. We're going to have descendants, at least. There's going to be children that come from our marriage. And so I know God can protect us even in Egypt, and so we're going to go. There's no food here, and so we're going to go, and we're just going to trust that God is going to preserve us. That's faith. It looks just like him moving maybe out of fear. The other side of the thing, if Abraham had chose to stay in Egypt, what he could have said is, God, or Sarah, God has called, he said, this is your land. He said very clearly we're supposed to move here. He never said we're supposed to go to Egypt. So I'm going to trust that even though there is no rain, he's going to take care of us. That could be faith. Or it could be denial. Not facing the reality that it's not raining and there's less and less food to eat. The key is your motivation. And nobody knows that except you and the Lord. You're the only one that knows why you're doing whatever it is that you're doing tangent or side note here. Don't get hung up on your feelings. They're irrelevant in large measure. God never commands us to feel a certain way. I I don't understand feelings. I've told you all before I'm a bit emotionally retarded, so I I I don't get all of that, but I know God never says feel a certain way. What I, he says is act a certain way, be a certain way. And so if you, have, if you feel anxious, don't allow that to, go, to knock you into the pit and say, I've already lost. You haven't. If you then act out of that anxiety, then you've lost. But feeling anxious doesn't mean anything other than you feel anxious. So what I would encourage you to do when you feel anxious is to say, God, I feel anxious about this, but I'm going to choose to trust you instead of, gripping tighter and trying to make things happen, or I'm going to choose to trust you instead of burying my head in the sand and pretending that everything's okay when it's not. If you feel afraid, don't allow that to knock you into the pit while I've already lost. You haven't. If you act out of fear, then yes, you have. But feeling afraid doesn't mean anything other than you feel afraid. So what I would, again, encourage you is, God, Abraham, God, I'm afraid that I'm going to go to Egypt And they're going to see my beautiful wife and they are going to kill me to get her. That scares me. Makes me afraid. Okay, that's fine. Good. That's good. Put it out there. Then the next thing is not, and here's what I'm going to do about it. The next thing is to say, I need to know what it looks like to trust you with this. I need to know how I'm supposed to navigate this because I'm scared literally for my life. That's that's the part that we're, that we're adding on. That's this ongoing nature of faith. It doesn't mean that you can never feel anxious. It doesn't mean you can never feel afraid. It doesn't mean you can never feel doubtful or feel confused. It just means you don't allow those feelings to drive your decision-making process. You acknowledge those feelings before the Lord, and then you say, but God, I, I, I want to trust you. You know my tendency. My tendency is to strategize my way through these things. My tendency is to just turn on the TV and hope it all goes away. You know my tendency. And what I'm asking is for grace from you to keep in step with your spirit. What does it look like? It very well could be. I could could conceive of a situation where what Abraham did was 
as shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove, what Jesus says. I could conceive of a situation where that could be the case if it's coming from a place where he's being led by the Spirit. There's a, there, there's, in Joshua, there's a, a Rahab. She doesn't tell the truth. And she's commended for it. We'll look at that at some point. We'll get to Joshua in 2030. So when we get there, we'll get into that. But, but we don't have that here with Abraham. There's no indication that he was acting from a place of, of faith or revelation. He had this thing. God said, here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. Here's the list. Boom, 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 boom. And it was strong enough in his mind for him to shape his life around it and to leave everything. Saying, yes, I believe God can do this. And then he got, he got afraid. He got scared. And my hope is that actually encourages you because what do we call Abraham? The father of faith. Throughout the New Testament, he is lauded and revered. He is lifted up as an example of what it means to trust God. Again, read Hebrews 11. It's all about how awesome Abraham is. So just because he kind of blew it in this instant, it doesn't mean that he wasn't a man of faith. His track record wasn't perfect and none of ours is going to be. The encouragement, I think, I hope, is the challenge is faith is ongoing. You can't rest on trusting him yesterday or that time. But the encouragement is, even if you're kind of bungling it a little bit, it's okay. Because there's grace for you. And God can help you get back on the road. Hebrews 11, I think it's 17. There's this interesting verse. We don't have t- passage. We don't have time to dig into it. But when God is speaking of Abraham and people in his uh, generation, the generations after him who didn't see full fulfillment, Abraham's descendants didn't actually settle in Canaan for hundreds of years after he died. And what it says is the fact that they continued to, to live towards the fulfillment of that promise, even though they didn't see it, says God, was not, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Very interesting. He's not ashamed to be called their God. And he's not ashamed to be called yours either. And so my encouragement to you is to say, go back. What has God spoken to me through this? What's he spoken directly to your heart? What's he said to you through people who love you and love him? Are you holding on to that? Or is it gone somewhere in the back? If, he, if you can grab it, and we're going to spend a second and pray about that, then what does it look like for you to continue to trust him in those areas now? What does it look like for some of you It's with your kids? You've got to trust God every Monday to Friday because of your kids are not right here under your protection when they're in school. And that's a daily trusting for you. It's not enough that you did it last week. You've got to re-up with him tomorrow. For some of you, you have to trust God daily for provision in your life because of where you are with work. Or you've got to trust God with calling. I don't know what that looks like for you. But there's this ongoing, this ongoing challenge, for, and it's an invitation. Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to give in to anxiety and fear? Let's pray. So we're going to kind of walk through three things. Um, we have ten minutes, so I think we'll be okay. We're going to walk through three things, and you can just uh, pray along with me if this is um, a category that you fit into. First, if you feel like you've lost your way, you don't have these anchor points. There's been revelation in your past, and for whatever reason, you, you, can't, you can't grab it. You've lost that sense of direction. God, I want to pray for those who 
if they were honest, would say they're a bit rudderless right now, not exactly sure what direction to go. God, I pray that you would remind them of the things that you've spoken to them in the past. I pray you would remind them of the promises that you have for them that are recorded uh, in your word. I pray you would remind them of the encouragement that they've gotten from people who love them and love you, God, that you would remind them of those things that you gave to them that would be lights on the runway, that would help them know where they need to be. second group, I want to pray for people who need to call on the name of the Lord. If that's you, if you're in a place and you just, you need his intervention. God, I pray that this would be an altar. This room, this time would be an altar for the men and women in this room who need to call on you. They need direction. They need healing. They need provision. They need encouragement. They need hope. They just need you to get involved in their life in some way. That's all prayer is. It's, it's an invitation for God to get involved. It's not informing him of a situation that he's unaware of. It's saying, here's a situation. Now I need you to step into this. So if that's you, I encourage you just to pray along. God, I need you to get involved in this. You could name that in your heart. And this is what I want to see happen. Ultimately, I trust you to work it out. But I just need you to engage in in this situation. Last group. If you tend to either be like Abraham and kind of control things when you get anxious or afraid, or if you tend to be an ostrich and put your head in the sand, if you're in one of those camps right now, you're doing that in some specific situation in your life. You're either trying to... You're taking matters into your own hands because ultimately you don't trust God to get involved or you're just living in denial because you're scared. Why don't you just lift that situation up to the Lord and pray along with me. God, I confess that there's this situation and it's making me really nervous. And I confess that I've given in to that nervousness and it's driving me to do whatever it's driving you to do. And I want to repent of that. I want to ask you now in these next couple of minutes to show me what it looks like to trust you today in that situation and with that situation. I want to keep in step with your spirit. I don't want to live in denial and I don't want to take matters into my own hands. I want to trust you as the great I am, the God of now. I want to be able to say, hallelujah, our God reigns in this situation, and none can oppose you. So stir confidence and faith in my heart, and give me grace to track with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to close with ministry. We'll have ministry teams up here in the corner. We'll pray with you about anything you have going on. We talked earlier about the importance of kind of, of those memorials. 
one of the things that can do that for you is actually saying out loud what God is doing in your heart. So if you prayed along with me on any of those areas, it would be excellent if you would come forward and just say, hey, this is what I was praying about. Would you guys just pray with me about that? That can serve as one of those altars, one of those piles of rocks, actually saying out loud um, what you feel like God's putting in your heart and what you're going to do about it. So y'all can stand up. We'll have ministry teams here in the corners, and Bo will dismiss us after this song. Thank you.